Revelation chapter 14. Got two Sundays until I'll be headed to South America. So I'm hoping, I think we'll get through chapter 14. Maybe even into chapter 15. But last week, or two weeks ago, um, we started with verse 9 and we got into the third angelic messenger that announces doom in what I call this snapshot of judgment. We're in the victory campaign of the war that was announced in Revelation 12. We started out in chapter 14. The first five verses were a snapshot of assembly. A picture worth a thousand words, kind of like this picture of assembly from World War II. And then we got into verse 6. Verses 6 through 8, snapshot of judgment. I mean, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 12, a snapshot of judgment. A picture worth a thousand words, just like this land beach in World War II. We're in this snapshot of judgment, and it involves three angelic messengers. The first announces the everlasting gospel that God is creator, and that He is worthy of praise because He judges the wicked. An announcement of judgment in general. And then we get into an announcement of doom or judgment against the world system, the body politic. Babylon is fallen. And then finally, this third angelic messenger announces the judgment of those individuals that make up the world system. We often think of God's judgment as against nations or against churches or against bodies or against intangibles. But God's judgment is also upon the individual. And we don't want to think about this. But judgment is upon the individual. And there are millions and millions of individuals that will perish in an eternal hell forever. Many of them we know and love. Because God's judgment's not just on a system. It's on an individual. And here we see that the wrath of God, that cup of His wrath that Jesus drank, for our salvation will be poured out upon all those that receive the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is an act of worship. And whether your motivation for receiving it is fear, or maybe if you receive it, you can stay around a little longer and be a witness for Christ, or all this stupid reasoning that people come up with, the result is eternal damnation. God's no respecter of persons. Fear is never an excuse for compromise. Never. You know, there have been those throughout history who gave their lives for the gospel, who went to the stakes and had their flesh burned off or watched their children fed to pigs or had their tongues cut out of their mouth for their testimony in Christ and were given opportunity to recant and refused. But then there were those from the higher echelons of society that were likewise arrested for their so-called faith and were given opportunities to recant and did so. And then came out later and would say things like, well, I didn't really mean it and God used it. I I did that so I could be around longer and be a witness for Christ. God sees through all that nonsense. God sees through all that fakery. And we have it. We're not being asked to pay with our lives here today in the church, but there are plenty like that who compromise and and justify it with ridiculous reasonings. God knows all these things. He remembers them. And as a result, all the fakery will burn up and judgment will be upon the individual. Here in Revelation 14, we're talking about the beast worshipers. And we're getting a clear statement of Scripture here that damnation in a lake of fire is eternal. It's not temporary. 
There is no purgatory. There is no annihilation of the wicked. There's eternal damnation and torment. And that's where we ended last time. But for the sake of review, let's just start at verse 9. And we've already exegeted these passages. I'll just continue in verse 11. But let's read this third angelic messenger and this third element of the snapshot of judgment in its entirety. We'll go 9 to verse 12. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man, any man, not a system, an individual, worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. We don't have the mark of the beast today. It's coming for those that dwell upon the earth. But there's plenty out here that worship the beast and his image. They worship the spirit of Antichrist and they worship the spirit of globalism. They're guilty just as so. And one day they'll receive the mark when he comes. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. The same cup that Jesus said, Father, if it's your will, let it pass from me. And it didn't pass. Jesus drank it. For us, the wine of the wrath of God, which into the which is poured out without mixture, 180 proof, not watered down, into the cup of his nation, and he that is those that receive the mark and worship Antichrist shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, not separated from God, the common things that are spoken, in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. And the smoke of their torment, not of their corpses, not of their remains, not of their ashes, the smoke of their torment. You have to be alive to be tormented. Ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. When justice is served, you have the faith and the patience of the saints. Verse 11 here is a very, very clear declaration of the eternality of God's eternal damnation in a lake of fire. It's clear. And yet there are those who deny this. We have false traditions and false cults and religions that say that hell is just God destroying the wicked, burning them up, and they're out of existence. And they'll know know no difference. The Seventh-day Adventists teach this heresy. This heresy didn't come from the Scriptures. It came from the visions and the opinions of some woman that they follow, some prophetess. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach this nonsense. There's some in the Church of England. Armstrongism, which is a cult, teaches this nonsense. Christian science, Mormons. In a sense, the Catholic Church teaches this nonsense through the doctrine of purgatory. That you can live as if there's no God and just because you go to the Catholic Church and take a wafer from a priest, a Baalite priest, that you can go to this purgatory for a temporary period of time and then earn your way back into heaven. It's really no different. Same spirit of deception. It's a lot of so-called evangelicals today. These hipsters, these cool preachers and teachers that want to fill their churches up with young people who teach this nonsense. There's no hell. Love wins. No hell. It's all love in the end. We have a lot that preach in evangelical churches and have 
pretty sound statements of faith, but yet they never speak about hell. They never warn the wicked about hell. They never talk about hell and eternal judgment. So they're really no different than the others. If you talk about what Jesus talked more about than heaven, you may as well not believe in it. You may as, be, be, as well be like the rest of these. There's a lot of people in so-called evangelical churches that preach and teach or say things in their statements of faith that they really don't believe. Just because a statement of faith is sound doesn't mean that the preacher is sound. Eternal hell and damnation are very clear. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. In this same lake of fire, death and hell are cast. Everyone that's in hell now is cast into this lake of fire, and their torment ascendeth forever and ever, and cannot be quenched. Those that teach annihilation, that God just annihilates the wicked and puts them out of existence, it's really, that's what atheism teaches, that you're, there's no God, you just die and go to the ground, that hell is really the grave, and you're out of existence. If that's true, why do anything for the Lord? Why suffer anything? You're not going to know any different anyway. But people who teach things like this in the fake, clear Scripture, they often make the fatal mistake of zeroing in on obscure passages of Scripture in other contexts located elsewhere, and then they filter the plain Scriptures like this through their obscure readings and interpretations while taking the clear passages out of their context and assuming if a word in some rare case could have an alternate meaning that it's automatically the alternate meaning, not the common meaning that the writer of Scripture is using. It's a web. It's a mess when you don't properly wield the sword of the Word of God. I've already taught in this body, it's been a while ago, about how we should properly wield the Word of God. How, we should, how you can improperly wield it as a sword. And how the plain Scriptures aren't to be filtered through those that are obscure or difficult to understand, but the other way around. And that we cannot ignore the context. We cannot ignore the verses before and after. We cannot ignore the writer and the original audience to whom he wrote. So much false teaching about salvation comes out of the book of Hebrews because people fail to see that the writer is addressing Jews. Big mistake. And that's what happens here with this doctrine of annihilation. There's often obscure passages in the Old Testament that aren't talking about judgment anyway, eternal judgment anyway. See, death, it, uh, eternal damnation is the grave. See, it's, it's, it's annihilation. And then just ignore these other passages and then have to say that torment actually means something else. It's crazy. It would be like if I were to make this statement. It's time for our president to build a legacy not of promises, but of does. Not one that promises, but one that does. Make sense? Now, 
like some of these annihilationalists or reformed theologians who do the same thing with clear passages of Scripture, that would be like taking that step and assume that I was saying our president needs to stop making promises and starts, needs to start acting like a couple of female deer in the field. Because you know the word does when on a piece of paper is also does. The plural form of two female deer. That's what people do with the Scriptures. Or I could say something like the lies that Esther Roy is sowing about this church in the face of all that was done for her need to be discounted. They're lies. We could take the annihilationist hermeneutic and say that, take that statement and say, well, he's talking, he's, he's, he must be referring to something that's written that has a certain cost and we need to discount the price of it. Bring that price down so it can be sold. Because discount could mean a, taking money off of a price tag or it could mean rejecting it. Okay, Just because a word has an alternate meaning doesn't mean the alternate meaning is what's being used. And that's what the annihilationalist does with verse 11. They say torment means something else even though the context is clear. We have to be careful about that. The Bible was written to the common man. And when the plain sense is common sense, there's no other sense. What do we call that in, in the English language when you have two words that are spelled exactly the same? They look exactly the same on a piece of paper, but they have totally different meanings. Homonyms? Not a homonym. It's not a homonym. Homonyms sound the same. Nope, it's called a homograph. Homograph. Homonyms sound the same, like here and here, H-E-R-E. A homograph does and does looks the same on a piece of paper, but has totally different meaning. That's why you've got to watch out for these false teachers. They often play little tricks like this because their father is not God, it's the devil. And the devil plays tricks like this with the Scriptures. He did it with Eve in the garden. He did it with Jesus when He quoted Scripture and conveniently ripped it out of its context. But Jesus took the obscure and retorted the devil's temptation with the plain. You should worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. But people that try to steer away from the eternal, eternality of hell, these are those that, what Peter says, rest the Scriptures to their own destruction. They take the Scriptures and they rest it. They twist it to their own destruction. When Ricky Springer left this church and failed in his ministry commitments, refused to seek biblical reconciliation, and threw all the spiritual counsel out that he received from a number of sources, and then tried to quote some obscure passage from the Old Testament, he rested the Scripture to his own destruction. He's a spiritual anarchist. Yeah, this will go public on the internet. It needs to be said. Paul named names ten times in the New Testament. He's a spiritual anarchist. Beware the spiritual anarchist. The spiritual anarchist has a spiritual mentality, seems to have a love for the thing God, may even have a testimony of boldness. But at the end of the day, he wants no accountability. He wants to decide what is right and wrong and doesn't want to be under the authority of a local church. Doesn't want to be under the authority of brothers and sisters that can warn him when he is wrong. Our ministry's never been that way. We're under authority. 
We're under the authority of our board of directors. We're under the authority of the local churches that support us. And that's why we can't be in association with those that don't want to be under spiritual authority. Those that claim, I'll worship God in my own home. I don't need to be around a body of believers. They're all hypocrites. That's a spiritual anarchist. Oh, there's plenty of churches out there we have no business being a part of. There's plenty of fake churches, dead churches, compromised churches. But there is a remnant. You're just not willing to look for it. Those that say, I worship God in my home or in the woods, all the churches are full of hypocrites, they're a spiritual anarchist. Those that use believers to benefit give the impression of coming under authority. And then when that benefit isn't satisfactory enough, they go somewhere else. That's a spiritual anarchist. Beware of these. Beware of these. They rest the Scriptures to their own destruction. Those that teach hell is otherwise than eternal do the same thing. So many rest the Scriptures to their own destruction. The only way we can protect ourselves from these is to be students of the Word. To be people of prayer. Look for some deeper meaning that's not there, but to take it at face value. This verse here, verse 11, needs no interpretation. I don't need to exegete it for you. It's very clear. The lake of fire is a place of eternal torment. Beware of the Scriptures. They're dangerous. It's the Word of God. It's a great treasure, but it's dangerous. It's a bear trap. If you start messing with it, it'll snap shut on you so quick you won't even know what hit you. And then you start messing with God's book, He's going to mess with your mind. Then you won't even have clarity to understand what it says. Beware. It's kind of like in our martial arts class, we like to teach self-defense. And self-defense principles, if applied consistently, not techniques but principles, can allow you to defend yourself whether it's an unarmed attacker, a knife, or a bat, or any type of weapon. There's not separate types of self-defense for different types of attacks. The same principles work across the board. But one of the biggest mistakes that students make, like when we're practicing knife defense, that's an applicable thing to do nowadays. I mean, here around the world nowadays, people just start stabbing people for no reason on the streets. Happened in London yesterday. Got out of car and started stabbing people on the streets. So to learn how to defend yourself against the knife, very practical. You watch the knife. If you zero in on the knife, you're going to get cut. Can't watch the knife. Those that rest the Scriptures to their own destruction have a presupposition And then they zero in on one passage of Scripture to justify it. And just like with that knife defense, you do it with God's Word, you're going to get cut to pieces. God's Word is a whole. Those that elevate the Sermon on the Mount for the believers above the writings of Paul to the church are going to get cut. Resting the Scriptures to their own destruction. Those that elevate... The Old Testament above the New Testament or the New Testament above the Old as if there's something different. Rest the Scriptures to their own destruction. You're going to get cut. We need to be students of the whole, not students of the parts. Beware. You're going to get cut. This passage is very clear. Hell is eternal or the lake of fire is eternal. Hell is like the county jail. You die, your soul goes to hell without, if you're without Christ. That's where the rich man went. It's a place of torment. It's a holding cell. It's like the county jail. You get arrested, you get thrown in the county jail. Those that are in hell today haven't even been judged yet. There's coming a time when death and hell are raised up and stand before a great white throne. 
And the Creator who sits on that throne, they won't even see His face. Because the heaven and the earth flee from His righteous face. And death and hell will be cast into a lake of fire. That's like the state penitentiary. You go to the county jail while you're awaiting your trial. You're tried, you're found guilty, you're put in the state pen. Hell's just a shadow. Just like the tabernacle here on earth in the desert was a shadow of a heavenly tabernacle. Hell, where the soul goes when it dies, is a place of torment. And it's a shadow of what is to come. In hell, the soul is tormented. At the great white throne, the, the damned soul is reunited with an eternal body and cast into a lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and the devil will be for all eternity. Forever and ever and ever. Is it in some obscure corner of the galaxy where no one can see? No. It's in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. It must be in our presence because we're in the presence of the Lamb for all eternity, those of us that are saved. And the book of Isaiah tells us it's an eternal burning. Just like the flame that rises at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the Holocaust Museum is eternal. It's always burning. A reminder of something horrible. A reminder of God's judgment. But rest assured, my friends, it won't be a reminder that brings sorrow. The saints here rejoice in the judgment because it's right. And it's true. Let's look at a few verses this morning just to highlight the absurdity of this teaching that hell is not really eternal or that the lake of fire is not eternal. And you can see how people get so tripped up by zeroing in on obscure passages and ignoring all the plain that it ends up being such a maze or web they they can't even find their way out. And I'm not just zeroing in on the annihilationalists. Reformed theologians do the same thing with Scripture when they say the church has replaced Israel and that the church is a new Israel and that God's not going to fulfill His promises. And land, uh, 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 land that was promised to Abraham actually meant something else. Or Israel actually means something else. It's the same thing. It's the same spirit. When somebody says, when somebody takes a very plain passage of Scripture in Hebrews that tells us to submit to those who rule over us in the church, to submit to our elders. Very clear. And then says, well, that's not applying to me in my situation. That's no different than what the annihilationist does about hell. It's no different. It's no different. Matthew 25, 41. This is Jesus' teaching here on the sheep goats where the nations are judged before Christ on His own throne. I believe the sheep and the ghost is a Goats is a picture of His judgment. When He comes to earth and He sets up His kingdom after Antichrist has, Christ has been deposed, He's on His own throne in Jerusalem and He judges the nations. The nations that remain after Armageddon. Those that were a refuge to His brethren are spared. Those that were not are destroyed. Nations are judged. His brethren here are the Jews. But look what Jesus says to the goats. Verse 41, Then shall He say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And now look, verse 46, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So Jesus says, Depart from Me into everlasting fire, 
And it says they go into everlasting punishment. But the righteous into life eternal. Now, turn over to John 3.16. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is there any doubt in John 3.16 that everlasting life means life forever and ever and ever? Well, guess what? When Jesus says everlasting fire and everlasting punishment, it's the exact same word in the original language. Exact same word. In fact, there in verse 46 when He says everlasting punishment for the wicked and everlasting life or eternal life for the wicked, the word everlasting eternal, exact same word in the original language. If you're just annihilated, you can't be punished. Jesus describes it as everlasting punishment. You can't punish a corpse. It's funny how people will claim that everlasting when talking about punishment or fire is not everlasting, but when it talks about life, it's everlasting. Aren't people strange? Life without end, but punishment only for a while. Mess with the book, God will mess with your mind. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. This isn't New Testament teaching. Some say that everlasting damnation is not taught in the Old Testament. <laughs> That's foolish. This is at... Uh, the end of Antichrist's uh, time, when he shall come to his end, the end of chapter 11. And at that time Michael shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Michael's the prince of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. So this is talking about the time of Jacob's trouble Jeremiah talks about this. This is the tribulation. The remnant of Israel will be delivered. And then Daniel says this, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. The bodies will awake. We know this happens at the judgment. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Life versus shame and contempt. Both spoken of as everlasting, same word. Well, my friends, shame is a feeling. Shame is a feeling we have when we know we've done something wrong and we've been caught. Contempt is an emotion. It's an emotion deep within us that responds to those <coughs> who are more righteous than us when it comes to our own sin. Feelings and emotions here are spoken of as everlasting. Corpses don't respond to anything. Ashes don't respond to anything. Only a living being can have feelings and emotions that are everlasting. We have a resurrection of everlasting damnation. And that contempt there, contempt is the emotion that will be commonplace in the lake of fire. Not one that begs God for forgiveness. Not one that says, oh God, I'm sorry. But one that curses God 
that gives God the middle finger, that says all kinds of wicked blasphemy, that hates God because of His righteousness. If you think people in hell are going to be begging for forgiveness, you're wrong. Even when the judgments are falling in the book of Revelation, they don't repent. They get more and more angry. Contempt. Not just eternal physical torment, but the, the torment of shame and contempt for all eternity. Turn to Luke 12. A lot of people teach that hell is the grave. It's just the grave. It's over. Jesus says in Luke 12, 4 and 5, I say unto you, my friends, Jesus was God in human flesh, 100% God, 100% man. He had friends. I say to you, my friends, some of them betrayed Him. When you think about those who've betrayed you, remember, Jesus has been there. And His was far worse than any betrayal we could ever expect. Because Jesus, unlike us, never handled things the wrong way. Jesus, unlike us, never had a root of bitterness. Jesus, unlike us, never sought revenge. And yet He was betrayed by those closest to Him. Judas was so close to Him that even when Jesus told in the presence of His disciples that He who dips the sop with Me is the one that's going to betray Me, and then Judas did it, and then Jesus said, what you have planned, go do quickly. Even then the disciples say, well, that Jesus must have had a secret errand. He must have had to go give some money to the poor. Even they didn't see it then. That's how deceptive it was. That's how close He must have been. He must have had that air of spirituality. No one even thought it could have been Him. I know plenty of people like that. Luke 12, 4 and 5, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say to you, fear him. After he hath killed has power to cast into hell. That's God. God has power to cast into hell someone after he has killed them. Hell's not the grave. Any ditch digger in a funeral home can cast your body into a grave. Any ditch digger. God cast your soul, and we're not to feel, fear the ditch digger. We're not to feel men who can kill the body. But God cast your soul into hell after you are dead. Hell is not the grave. Hell is something other. God can cast, men can cast into the grave all day long. They can't cast into hell after the grave, but God does. We say R.I.P., rest in peace. For those without Christ, there is no R.I.P. None. Last night, Muslim jihadis got out of a van in London and just started throwing people off the bridge, stabbing them, running over them. I don't know how many were killed. It was quite a few, a lot of people injured. People just think that they can refuse, you know, refuse to see and call Islam what it is and then just continue partying, living a life of whoremongering and drugs and reveling in the partying and then just think that this stuff is a shock or a surprise. It's really hard to feel sad anymore. What's sad is that 
The moment after that occurred, in a span of about eight or ten minutes, both jihadi and whoremonger, both jihadi and partier, both jihadi and homosexual, both jihadi and pedestrian woke up right beside each other in a place called hell. And there was no rest for those without Christ. I don't know if any true believers were killed. I don't know. But that's the sad part. There are those that can kill the body, but the one that has power to cast into hell after you're dead knows your heart. He knows whether you're true or fake. And just because you're a victim of the, the death cult that is Islam doesn't make you righteous before God. In some cases, the death cult as Islam might be his judgment against a wicked people that ought to know better, that have turned their back on God. We talk about that execution, that massacre in that nightclub in Florida that took place a while back when that terrorist went in there and killed all those people. That's tragic. But have you ever stopped to think about the level of wickedness that goes on in those gay nightclubs? I walked in one. I finagled my way into one years ago, kind of as a joke here in Hickory, just to see what was going on. And in the five to ten seconds, I was able to look in there. The stench of wickedness was so heavy, I had to get out. Wicked places. The Bible says the wicked will be cast into hell and all the nations that forget God. It's real. Let's don't assume something else. Let's don't call it something else. Let's call it what He is. God has the power to cast into hell after you're dead. Hell's not the grave. Any ditch digger can cast into a grave. Matthew 13, 42. This never gets preached upon. I feel the need to just linger a little bit. Matthew 13, 42. And he shall cast them. This is a parable of the kingdom of God at the end of the wheat and the tares. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I'm going to get into this a little bit when we get to the end of chapter 14. We have these two reapings. Because I think the wheat and the tares sheds light on what this actually means. But in verse 42, Jesus said, He shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then in verse 50, it's repeated in another parable there. And He shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. God doesn't cast you into the Woodlawn Cemetery, my friends. He cast you into a place where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wailing is the sorrow that Esau had when he realized that Jacob had tricked him. It wasn't a sorrow unto repentance. It was a wailing unto worldly, it's worldly sorrow. Gnashing of teeth is what people do when they're angry and full of content and hatred. Hatred for God. This is what hell is. A furnace of fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't happen. Corpse don't gnash their teeth. The interesting thing about the wheat and the tares is if you read this parable, Jesus speaks it to the people along with some other parables. And then His disciples take Him aside later and ask Him to interpret it for them. Jesus did not speak in parables so the people would more, under, more clearly understand the Word of God that was in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke in parables to confuse the wicked who knew the Word of God but didn't want to hear it. Parables were written to, to, to confuse. The prophecy in Isaiah proves it. He spoke in parables to confuse, not to make clear. 
Anybody that teaches that is wrong. Read the Old Testament. Isaiah is very clear. Isaiah 6, very clear. The people didn't need the God in the Old Testament to be spoken clearly. It was clear and they had rejected it for the traditions of men. Isaiah 53 is so clear that it's talking about Jesus. But when men have rejected God's clear teaching, He messes with their minds. I've had a Jewish person say, I know this is talking about Jesus. I know the rabbis are wrong, but I just can't believe this because I'm Jewish. You mess with the book, God will mess with your mind. But in this wheat and the tares, it's interesting because Jesus interprets it for His disciples. And He talks about how the good seed stands for the children of the kingdom. The tares represent the children of the wicked one. The enemy is the devil who sows the tares. The harvest, He said, stands for the end of the world. And the reapers, He says, stands for the angels but that he doesn't interpret or offer a meaning for the word fire in his interpretation. These statements about fire are in Jesus' interpretation of the parable. And in Jesus' interpretation, fire is fire. The enemy is the devil, but fire is fire. And therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So shall it be in the end of this world. He who hath ears to him hear. The problem with so many Christians today, they don't have ears to hear. Brother James over in Bangladesh has no ears to hear right now. No doubt in my mind he's a born-again brother, but he doesn't have ears to hear. There's no point in trying to convince him otherwise. No point. Ricky Springer had no ears to hear. Let him go. It's God's problem now. No ears to hear. There are genuine born-again believers who come to a place where they have no ears to hear. There are genuinely born-again believers who fall into spiritual anarchy. And if they don't repent, they'll stumble and fall. God may have to take them out. God may render them useless in ministry. They're not damned. They won't be in hell. But I'll tell you one thing. All of these so-called works, when the spiritual anarchist stands before the judgment seat of Christ where the works of believers are either, either survive the fire or burned up, these spiritual anarchists are those like Eli the priest who won't rule their homes, won't take a stand, that care more about support than they care about truth, the day will come at the judgment seat of Christ where their soul may be saved. But before that judgment seat, when it comes to their works, there'll be a bonfire that makes Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like a wiener roast in my backyard. That's what's coming for a lot of Christians who have all these so-called works, but it'll burn up. But praise God, yet their soul will be saved. But unfortunate, spiritual anarchists, those who don't have ears to hear. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Fire is fire, wailing and gnashing of teeth in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. This is the classic text used by Jehovah's Witnesses to try to say that hell... And the lake of fire is not eternal. This is where they go to justify their interpretations. Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 5. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, 
And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I'll read verse 6. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. God threatens to come and smite the earth with a curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse. It's 400 years go by before God speaks again as He did in Luke chapter 1. Wow, 400 years. Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament ends with a blessing. But it's all one and the same. This is written to Israel. This is written to the remnant. It's talking about a day that's coming. Not one time in this passage is hell mentioned. Not one time in this passage is anything about a lake of fire or eternal judgment mentioned. This is talking about a specific day that will burn as an oven. What is that day? What is that day that will burn as an oven where everybody standing on their feet will literally melt and the armies will perish and that remnant of Israel that remains will be as calves in the stall? What is that day? It's Armageddon. This Armageddon. This isn't hell. Hell's not even mentioned in this Scripture. And yet this is what the annihilationist says is his proof. Jeesh! People are strange. Not one time in this Scripture is hell mentioned. So you'll, you'll take this passage to justify your annihilationist teaching. You'll ignore everything else that Jesus has said. That's what people who claim the name of Christ do with the Scriptures. Beware. The Scripture is the measuring stick. This is what tells us who to trust and who to uh, be wary of. This is what tells us who's, who to believe or not to believe regardless of their tears and their crying. I'm sick of the tears. I'm sick of the crying. I'm sick of the poor me. I'm sick of it all. It doesn't mean anything. And when the people put the hashtag Pray for London on Facebook this morning, it means nothing. Nothing. This passage is talking about the day when Christ sets foot on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, and the people that are gathered against Him, their eyes will literally melt out of their sockets. It says that in Zechariah 14. There'll be a remnant. Jesus is seen there gathered with them atop the rubble. Snapshot of assembly there in Revelation 14. Turn to John 5. In case you have any doubt, I just want you to see what the Scriptures say about hell. John 5, 28 and 29. <coughs> Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice. Some shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Hell is not in the grave. It's not the grave. Hell is not the grave. Because those in the grave awake to a resurrection. A resurrection of damnation. 
So God's going to raise up a body, damn it to hell, and then destroy that body? No, that's as ludicrous as the idea that the church will be raptured at the end of the tribulation, go up a few hundred miles and then make a U-turn and come right back. Ludicrous. Ludicrous. Hell is not the grave. The lake of fire is a resurrection of damnation. Turn to Revelation 20. Twenty verse five. Satan is shut up for a thousand years during the millennial reign. Those that remain in the church and the, the, the remnant that remains lives and reigns with Christ for a thousand years. And then verse five it says, But the rest of the dead, those that have died, and those that die in the tribulation. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the dead in the graves are going to live again after the thousand year reign. And that living again is the first resurrection. A resurrection to damnation. And then go to verse 10. What happens when the dead live again after the thousand years? Verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil himself is put in a bottomless pit and chained during the millennial reign of Christ. Then he's let loose. He deceives the nations. And they gather against the city of God. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. And then the devil is cast where the Antichrist and the beast had been cast a thousand years earlier. Remember when Christ comes back in Armageddon, the false prophet and the Antichrist, not the beast and the, and the Antichrist, the Antichrist is the beast. The false prophet's the beast out of the earth, Antichrist, beast out of the sea. They're taken by Christ and cast into that lake of fire. A thousand years later, the devil's cast in there. And guess what? It's where the beast and the false prophet are. They're still alive. These are men... Satan's supermen, and they're still alive a thousand years later. You know, occasionally you'll see a word in the King James Bible that's in italics. Italics means that the actual word itself is not there in the original language, but it's necessitated by, in, in order to translate it accurately. It's necessitated because it's embedded in one of the other words. <clears throat> And somebody would somebody and, and it shows what an amazing translation it is. The proof that the word are, that this Antichrist and this false prophet are still alive, isn't because the verb to be is in the original Greek. It's because the verb shall be tormented in the original is not singular, it's plural. So when the devil is cast into a lake of fire and shall be tormented. There's somebody else that's tormented because it's a plural verb. The devil is cast singular and shall be tormented plural beast and antichrist. That's what it literally says in Greek. The verb are or to be is necessitated. It's an accurate and a right translation. But unlike the modern versions, the King James translators didn't attempt to deceive you. They put it in italics. So you could see that this is a word necessitated. There'd be no confusion there. 
The Antichrist and the false prophet are alive a thousand years later when the devil's cast in. And then look at verse 14. Or verse 13 and 14. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. So death and hell delivered up the dead and those dead are judged. Hell's a holding cell. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death and hell are cast into the same place where the Antichrist and the false prophet are still alive a thousand years later to be joined with the devil. It's eternal. It's not annihilationalism. Hell is cast into the lake of fire. Everybody in hell today, which I believe is in the heart of the earth, are cast into the lake of fire at the judgment. When everlasting is used to describe life, it means everlasting life. When it's used to describe torment, contempt, wailing, gnashing of teeth, and death, it means everlasting forever. Not a natural death, a spiritual death. If it's just a body's death is everlasting in the sense that the body never comes back alive, but it can't have contempt, it can't have shame, it can't have feelings, it can't have responses. The second death spoken here is eternal torment in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. Very clear. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. The lake of fire is real. The lake of fire is eternal. And the day comes when they're one and the same. Hell is cast into a lake of fire. God's judgment upon the wicked, those who reject His Christ, is everlasting damnation. An unending testimony and a reminder where feelings of shame and emotions of contempt do endure. I mentioned this passage a couple weeks ago. Let's review it. Isaiah 66. Jesus quotes this passage in Mark chapter 9 when He's talking about hell. He says it three times. Where the worm does not die, nor the fire is not quenched. Isaiah 66, 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. This is Israel. Their seed and their name will remain forever, just like the new heavens and the new earth. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. This is in the new heavens and the new earth. All flesh will come up to the eternal city of God to worship the Lord. Eternal. There won't be sin. It's a new heavens and the new earth. What will happen when they go up to worship? And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. So as people in the new heavens and the new earth come up to worship God, there'll be an eternal reminder, just like that flame at Yad Vashem, of, of, of abhorrence of evil. Looking upon the carcasses. Now I don't believe, I believe it'll be at a distance. 
There'll be a burning. We'll see the carcasses as a whole, not necessarily an individual. But it'll be there from a distance to remind us. We'll be abhorred by it. We won't be saddened by it. We'll be abhorred. It'll be an eternal testimony of God's judgment upon sin. Just like that flame that burns is an eternal testimony. Or not eternal in the sense of transcending this earth, but it's a testimony for as many generations as remain or come and go of what was done to the Jews when they were cast into the ovens. It's a burning that is a visual reminder of the ovens. The same will be the case with the lake of fire. I believe we'll see it from a distance. A great distance. Just like Lazarus and, and Abraham saw the rich man from a distance. A great gulf. They could communicate. And the things in this earth are a shadow of things that are eternal in the heavens. Are they not? Something to think about. Why then do we avoid this topic? Why do we beat around the bush when it comes to hell? Jesus preached more about hell than He did heaven. Most of what we know about heaven and the eternal state did not come from the Gospels. It comes from the epistles. It comes from the writings of John. Jesus spoke about hell time and time and time again. Warned. Said it was better if your hand causes you to sin to cut it off and enter into life with one hand than to go into hell with both hands. Why do we change the subject? It's because we're either headed there or we know people for whom it's too late and we got an excuse. We don't want to accept it. We don't want to accept that we have loved ones in hell that we'll never see again. We don't want to accept that we have loved ones right now who are headed to hell. So we want to change the subject and think the best. That doesn't do any good. That doesn't fix anything. I'd rather know the truth than to deceive myself into thinking otherwise. We're all saddened by what Esther has done after so much has been done for her, but wouldn't you rather know the truth of what was in her heart? We know what was in her heart because of all the wicked things that was being said about some of you godly people behind your backs. This whole time you were helping her. Wouldn't you rather know the truth than to be deceived? I would. As painful as it is. Right now I have family members that are headed to hell. I have a sister I believe is on her way to hell. Along with her husband. On her way to hell. Unless God changes something. I pray for that. But it's the truth. Why beat around the bush? You couldn't... There's no other explanation for the actions that have been taken. I've got a cousin that's on his way to hell. Used to give a appearance that he was a godly young man and wore the Christian t-shirts. And then he left home and went off to the college. And it wasn't two years later he's openly identifying as something completely opposite in so many areas of what God's Word says. Headed for hell. Never knew Christ. I was headed for hell claiming to be a Christian for seven years of my life. Praise God, He saved me and awoke me to the fact that I was headed to hell. There's hope for anyone if He could save me. But the truth is the truth. I've got family members that were in ministry that I have serious doubts about where they stand spiritually. All the years of the so-called ministry and the 40 hours a week in the church job mean nothing. When you have to choose between good and evil and compromise, and you choose compromise, none of that means anything. It's obviously something else. I had an uncle that fell off some stairs and hit his head and died. Had degrees and all sorts of things. Could speak all sorts of languages. 
very intelligent, could quote any passage of Scripture, could exegete anything in the original language, all these degrees, so smart, smarter than everybody else in his mind, so spiritual, and was walking up a set of stairs and fell back and hit his head and boom, dead. Hell for all eternity. Not going to beat around the bush. And all it took it years and years and years of godly people sowing into the lives of his children. It took one visit of one weekend to turn them away from everything they'd ever been taught. Now they're barreling toward hell. Never were saved. That's reality, folks. That's the reality of the world. Many are called, but few are chosen. Don't make excuses for your loved ones or in hell. Praise God we're not the final judge. Praise God there's always hope. But stop making excuses. Stop watering down something that's serious and ought to motivate us. For those that still have breath in their bodies, there's hope. But remember, many are called, few are chosen. It's always been that way. It's amazing how the church today thinks they can have some new strategy that all of a sudden the gospel, which has been repulsive to the majority of humanity for the entire church age, will all of a sudden be accepted by humanity. They act as if when Jesus preached, everybody came and was saved. Yeah, a lot of people came for miracles. A lot of people came because they wanted to be fed. But where were they when He was betrayed? Where were they when He was arrested? They were cursing Him. The ones that had the, they had the palm branches worshiping, singing Hosanna. One week later said crucify Him. The Hosanna meant nothing. It was fulfillment of prophecy. Let's wake up, friends. Let's stop making excuses for our family members and friends. Let's pray for them if they're still alive, but let's see it for what it is. We do no favors to those loved ones headed to hell by convincing ourselves that maybe they are saved just because they said they were. We don't do them any favors. Just like in my martial arts class, if somebody's not doing it right, and I know they couldn't defend themselves, I do them no favors by saying good job. I do them no favors by giving them a belt when they didn't earn it. When they go out on the street and are harmed, it's my fault. We do them no favors. Hell is eternal, and the eternality thereof ought to motivate us to be realist. Not pessimist, but realist. Realist. Pray for those that are lost as if they're lost. And quit holding on to some fool's hope that they're saved when years and years of testimony tell other words, otherwise. And you know, Facebook has positive advantages in terms of networking with Christians. But more than anything else, it exposes what's really in the heart of believers. You see, before Facebook, the silly women in churches laden with sins could go around gossiping and backbiting, but it stayed within a church. Now, they get on Facebook busybodies, and they backbite and gossip, and it goes all over multiple churches. There's so, much, there's so many busybody women on Facebook claim the name of Christ. Shame on them. Gossip. It exposes who you are. My sister exposed herself on Facebook. These people, they expose themselves. Sooner or later, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. You can't hide it. When the mouth speaks, 
sooner or later the heart leaks. This liberal fool on HBO that's supposed to be so progressive, so tolerant, and so liberal, he slipped up in an interview recently. What was in his heart came out. You know, the left is supposed to be so racially tolerant and love everybody. But what was in that wicked devil's heart came out when he used the N-word in a public interview. This went on a couple days ago. I don't know if you guys saw it. That's what's really in the heart of the left. Racism. Racism. Hatred. Contempt. For everybody but themselves. Sooner or later, when the mouth speaks, the heart leaks. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Why do we avoid? Why do we beat around the bush? We can't afford to beat around the bush when it comes to eternal damnation. We can't do it. That doesn't mean that our words shouldn't be gracious. That doesn't mean that our words shouldn't be clothed with compassion. I had an opportunity a few days ago to witness to someone for an extended period of time. Someone that's obviously had a lot of hurt in their lives. A lot of trial. Eventually into that conversation, it was admitted by this person that she was homosexual. Now the only reason that came up is because she was convicted. She knows it's wrong. God didn't need me to say that in those moments. She knew it was wrong. That's why it came up. Because there was no reason for it to come up. But I didn't make any apologies for God. I didn't make any excuses. She said, please don't judge me. I said, well, my judgment really doesn't mean anything anyway. God judges. And God is very clear in His Word what is right and what is wrong. God's very clear about what He will judge in hell. So whether I judge you or not is insignificant. God's Word is very clear about these things. That's what I chose to say. I didn't beat around the bush, but it was also, I tried to model it after Christ, compassion and graciousness. Then I was able to give her a gospel tract, and she sent me a text yesterday, even though I was very clear, but it didn't faze me. My, my, when, this work, when this admission was made, I tried to be careful. didn't even let my facial expression change. I wasn't intimidated by it. It just gave me more of an honest to speak the truth. And I got a, a text from her yesterday saying how much she really appreciated me with her my journey, and those things that I talked about. So, don't beat around, beat, not beating around the bush doesn't mean you're a jerk. Doesn't mean you have no compassion. It doesn't mean you have no graciousness. Our Lord had those things. And He certainly didn't beat around the bush. He spoke with authority, but He also did it with gracious words. And it astonished the people. So always keep that in mind. Let's look at verse 12. This is the end of the snapshot of judgment. We've been told about the judgment of the beast worshippers. And then it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. If we go to verse 13, we hear it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. The question is, is the patience and faith in verse 12 talking about what's written thereafter in verse 13? Or is the patience of the saints what has just been written concerning eternal damnation of the wicked? That's the question. I believe the patience of the saints is not tied to verse 13. It's, it's tied to the judgment that's already been mentioned. And I'm going to show you the proof. Turn to Revelation 13. Shouldn't even have to flip each. 
Verse 13, this is in terms of uh, the beast and those that worship him. Here we have what I call divine karma. Buddhism and the Eastern religions speak of karma. Reaping what you sow. The problem with that concept is it leaves out the Creator, the Judge. There is karma in this life, but it's divine karma from the hands of God. Not just happenstance. Divine karma. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. You reap what you sow. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. So here we're told that divine karma, justice, is the patience and faith of the saints. The patience and faith of the saints in chapter 13 verse 10 is tied to the judgment. It's tied to justice served. Divine karma. That's how we know verse 12 in chapter 14 goes with verses 9 through 11, not, not with verse 13. The word translated here means in this place, or this one, that one. It's often used as an adverb or a personal pronoun. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, what is here? Is he talking about something he's going to say or something he's already said? Verse chapter 13 ties it to judgment. We have an interesting simple rule of grammar when it comes to adverbs and pronouns. You've got to go to the nearest antecedent, to the nearest noun or verb to see what it's talking about. People get that wrong in the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks. They ignore simple first grade grammar and that's why they say that the prince that shall come is Messiah, not the Antichrist. Foolishness. You mess with God's book, he'll mess with your mind. Let me give you a sentence Jesse preached again this morning. Carefully was his manner. And Daniel took notes. I'll say it again. Jesse preached again this morning. Carefully was his manner. And Daniel took notes. Was it Jesse that preached carefully or Daniel that took notes carefully? It's obvious that the careful was about the preacher, not about the one taking notes. But those who rip Scriptures out of context want to make it as if it's about the one taking notes. Nearest antecedent to carefully is Jesse, Daniel. That's what's happening here. Verse 12 goes with verses 9 and 11. In other words... The patience of the saints is justice served. This goes with the snapshot of judgment, not with the snapshot of rest. Turn to Psalm 58. Remember those saints that are in heaven, the fifth seal judgment, saying, how long, O Lord, before You will pour out Your wrath? And He says, just a little while. The iniquity's not full. Your fellow servants must also be sacrificed. Well, that patience and that faith of the saints is finally rewarded. And it's rewarded when justice is served. The psalmist says in Psalm 58, verse 10, The righteous shall cry when they see the vengeance. No. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. 
He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. There is a God that judgeth in the earth. When the wicked are judged, the righteous applaud. They applaud because it proves that their labors have not been in vain, and it proves that there is a righteous judge who knows the truth. All this madness that you all as a local church have endured these last five, six months, the truth will come out. It will come out. People can go around and spread all their lies and gossip on Facebook and claim all this stuff, but God knows the truth. And when justice is served, the righteous applaud. It's the patience and the faith of the saints. I'm not going to make excuses of that. I'm not going to make excuses for the fact that the patience of the saints is the judgment of the wicked in hell. Just like I won't make excuses for the Old Testament law. The civil laws. Israel was told how to restrain evil in their society. And they were told to carry out these civil codes so that other nations would look at their law and say, this is a good law. I know exactly what the Old Testament law says about homosexuals, whoremongers, those that persecute the disabled, those that steal and graft or cheat. I know exactly what that law says about it. And I make no apologies for it. Make no apologies. There are people in this country today who are seditious traitors that ought to be hanging from a noose in a sane society. Islamic terrorism is not going to stop as long as people keep making excuses for Islam. That is Islam. That's what the Quran teaches. If there's Muslims that don't, there are a lot of Muslims that don't do these things, but you can rest assured they think it. I've been around enough, enough Muslims to know that in their heart, there's contempt and hatred for anyone that converts out of Islam. That's why a peaceful farmer who's just living his life in a quaint little corner of India finds a Bible in his son's backpack and then beats him horribly over it. Because that's what's in his heart. There's a lot of Muslims that don't do those things because there's a lot of Christians that are nominal and don't do the things in the Bible. But what the terrorist does is in the Quran, it's taught. It's Muhammad's life and example. Barbarism, bloodshed. And as long as people refuse to see that and make excuses, none of it's going to stop. We have the answer to all the problems in this country. It's in the Old Testament. The civil codes that were given to Israel. But I'm not a politician. Chapter 15, we're going to see that the saints in heaven, those awaiting God's judgment, sing that song of Moses... Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Verse 3, just and true are thy ways. Why are they saying this? The end of 4. For thy judgments are made manifest. The rejoicing is because of the judgment. So in both chapter 13, the chapter before chapter 14, and in chapter 15, the rejoicing, the patience, the faith is tied to the judgments. That's how we know that verse 12 goes with what I've just spoken about. The judgment of the individual. The judgment of the system. The judgment of the Creator. Verse 13. We've had two snapshots in this victory campaign. A snapshot of assembly. 
Messiah assembled with the 144,000, Mount Zion. We've had a snapshot of judgment portrayed through three angelic messengers. Judgment upon, judgment executed by God, the Creator. Judgment upon a system and judgment upon those that make up the system. Judgment upon that Politburo and upon the proletariat. And now we have the fourth snapshot. I mean, so the third snapshot of victory. This is a snapshot of what I call rest. And just as the snapshot of assembly is a picture worth a thousand words, resembles Iwo Jima, snapshot of judgment, a picture worth a thousand words that, is, that resembles the landing at Normandy, I'm going to continue with this analogy to World War II. We have a snapshot of rest here. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. From this point in that tribulation period. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. It's time to die. Give yourself up. Don't flee. Go ahead and die in the Lord. Find rest. We're at a point in the tribulation where the seven vile judgments have not even been poured out yet. The vials of the wrath of God. We're going to get into that in chapter 16. Armageddon hasn't taken place. And yet the saints that remain are told, you're blessed if you get to die in the Lord. Come find rest. Well, the war's not over. The saints are told to rest in their death, but the war's not officially over. There's still the vile judgments. There's still Armageddon. But at this point, it's as good as done. You can rest. On May 7th, 1945, this was uh, the headline in the New York Times. The war in Europe is ended. Surrender is unconditional. VE will be proclaimed today. Our troops on Okinawa gain. It was a snapshot of rest. Relax. The war in Europe is over. This was on May 7th, 1945. In the New York Times. I, I, I shudder to even reference the New York Times. I know this was years ago, but the New York Times is not worth... I mean, it, it, it's worth less than toilet paper that I use to clean myself. It's worse than that. Let, let, worth less than that. It's a rag. It's fake news. The news media here in this country today is evil. It's the same evil that was in the Soviet propaganda machine. The Nazi propaganda machine. They are the very things they accuse people like us of being. Hypocrisy. Back in Stalin's uh, reign of terror in the Soviet Union, hit, one of his chief ministers was a, name, a man by the name of Berea Leventi. He was a propaganda minister. He was known for saying, show me the man and I'll show you his crimes. He's the one that would go dig up dirt on people that Stalin was paranoid about. Dictators are always paranoid. That we had to find some evidence of a crime so that we could justify getting rid of him. And this Lavrenti would go out and dig up dirt and twist things just like the New York Times does today about our president and about the good people of this country. This Lavrenti spent his entire life digging up dirt. Fake news, fake news. That's the example that the New York Times follows today. What's interesting, when we think about divine karma, he that leads into captivity will 
go into captivity. He that kills will be killed. This is the patience of the saints. Years later, when there was some shakeup after Stalin's death in the so Soviet government, and Khrushchev came to power, what this Lavrenti had done to so many others was done to him. They accused him of treason. They took him down to a basement and they shot him dead. What he had done for so many people fell upon his own head. What these wicked people in these news rags are doing with righteous people will fall upon their own head. They will be victims of the very thing they do to others. Shame on these news rags. If you spend money to get a copy of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or even the Charlotte Observer, or you actually subscribe online and spend money, you really need to rethink about that. Talk about a waste of money. Don't re I mean, I certainly wouldn't spend money to read what I know to be fake news. It's fake. It's lies. Notwithstanding, the New York Times announced victory in Europe, essentially telling the people of America, relax, rest. The war wasn't over. This was May 7th, 1945. But did you know that it wasn't until May 9th that the Nazis surrendered to the Russians? There were two whole Nazi armies in Europe. One fighting the, the Europe and, and, and Britain and, and the French, and the other fighting the Russians. The ones fighting the Russians didn't surrender until two days later. So we have a declaration of rest in which victory is assured that actually preceded the fighting. It wasn't until May 12th, five days later, that the last Nazi troops in Europe surrendered in Prague. And did you know that the war with Germany wasn't declared to be officially over until October 24th, 1951? It wasn't until 1951, more than six years later, that Truman declared it to officially be over. So here we have rest being declared before the war is actually over. That's what's happening here. Why is it strange that the saints would be told to rest when we haven't even seen the vile judgments? We haven't even seen the battle of Armageddon. It's nothing strange. When God speaks to the common man, He speaks to methodologies that are common among men. The people of America were told to relax in terms of the war in Europe long before it was over. One of the reasons why it took so long for it to be declared officially over is that there were agreements about how... Nazi Germany and, 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 and the, the, the nation states in Europe would be divided up and certain promises that were made weren't kept by the Soviets and it took six years to hash it all out. But the war wasn't officially over till six years later. Here we have a point in the tribulation where the saints are told, rest, welcome death, welcome it, and rest from your labors. And then what happens is there's a lot that happens. Now I think what happens with the vile judgments in Armageddon happens very quickly. But still, we have rest in victory being announced before the end of the war. Nothing strange. September 2nd, 1945, was this snapshot of rest or snapshot of victory? Japan surrenders to the Allies. Signed rigid terms on warship. Truman sets today as VJ Day. September 2nd, 1945, rest, relax. World War II is over. But, it wasn't until a week later, September 9th, that the Japanese troops, one of the main bodies of their army, surrendered in China. They didn't surrender in China for another week. 
back on August 9th, less than a month before this declaration in the New York Times, Russia had declared war on Japan. And did you know that that war's never ended? There's never been a peace or an official end to the war that Russia declared on Japan August 9th of 1945. There's a little group of islands at the top of the Japan archipelago called the Kuril Islands. When the leaders of America and Britain and Russia met at the Yalta Conference, there's that famous picture of Stalin and, and, and uh, uh, Churchill and, 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 and uh, Roosevelt sitting there. Roosevelt looks very uh, weak. He, he would die not long after that. At the Yalta Conference, it was agreed that this Kuril Islands would be given to the Soviet Union though Russia had actually given it to Japan in 1855 in a treaty of commerce. They had actually been acknowledged as Japanese islands more than, almost, more than, uh, less, a little less than 100 years earlier. But at the Yalta Conference it was said, okay, if you'll declare war on Japan and help us, we'll make sure you get these islands back. There's a dispute over these islands today and therefore World War II between Japan and Russia has never even ended. In fact, in 1951, Japan actually agreed and renounced these islands and tried to get the Soviets to sit down at a table in San Francisco and have a peace treaty. They agreed to give them those islands. Russia refused to sign the peace treaty. It refused to end the war. 1950, Japan changed its mind and it now claims these islands as its northern territories. Russia says it's their island. So World War II in the Pacific technically has never ended. And yet victory and rest is urged and declared before the end of the war. Rest is possible long before official victory. It's possible. We're long before the official victory when Messiah comes back and sets up His kingdom. At the very least, seven years away. At the very absolute least. It could be 25 years from now. We don't know. I believe it's close. But we can rest now, my friend. As the church, we're not told to be seeking out who is the Antichrist. Where is Gog and Magog? It's helpful to know these things and understand the time. But we're to be looking for the blessed hope. He that comes in the clouds will take us home. So the victory in terms of its chronology isn't here yet, but we can rest as if it is long before that victory. What's told to the saints here in the tribulation can apply to us. Death doesn't have to be something we fear. Death in the Lord is something that is rest from our labors. That's why we can rejoice for those saints that have gone before. Not sorrow as those that have no hope. Rest is possible long before a official victory when the victor is the creator of heaven and earth. When the victor is the one that it will be long before it happens and it is done. And God has a long, long testimony of being true to His Word. So we can rest now, despite all the troubles that are coming to this wicked world. We can rest. There's nothing unusual in this invitation of verse 13. Prior to the vile judgments or to Armageddon. For the saints of God, we can rest long before the victory transpires chronologically because the victory is assured. There is no good versus evil in which God is the good, Satan's the evil. It's this eternal conflict where there's no sure outcome. No, God's above that. So much so that Antichrist himself is called the rod of God's anger. You know, God uses the wrath of Satan and the wrath of evil men 
to punish wickedness. In the end, it's His wrath itself and vials that are poured out. The world doesn't have a clue about the wrath of God. They've seen taste of it throughout history. They've tasted the wrath of wicked men and the devil, but when the wrath of God comes, it's something other. When Christ sets His foot on earth, there won't even be a hand-to-hand combat like there was between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. The Antichrist will be broken without hand. It's over just like that. Not even a fight. Not even a wound. It won't even last. It, it, it won't even be as long as that fight years ago in the 80s between, who was it, Mike Tyson and Michael Spinks? What, all that hype about that boxing match and it lasted like 18 seconds. It won't even last that long, the fight between Christ and Antichrist. It says He's broken without hand. Instant. Victory is assured. We can rest, therefore, today. I want to take this analogy next week, and it's kind of interesting because we we see it with the American Civil War as well. Some interesting facts, and then I want to get into the rest of the chapter. What we see from verses 14 through 20 is the last of the four snapshots. It's a snapshot of reaping. Okay, Just as these headlines from the World War II era are a snapshot of rest, here we have a picture worth a thousand words that is a snapshot of reaping. Anybody know what that is? Hiroshima. Now that explosion right there it's going to look like a weenie roast at the judgment seat of Christ compared to the works of some, so, some believers that are going to burn up. Keep that in mind. And we're going to talk about two reapings. This, these last few verses are a little difficult. Um, it could mean one of a few things. And it could all of them at the same time. The Scriptures are like that. John the Baptist was Elias that should come. But he was also a shadow of an ultimate fulfillment. The Scriptures are like that. But at the end of the day, divine karma is unalterable. It's an unalterable law. You reap what you sow. It can either be reaped on the shoulders of Christ and received, or it will be reaped at the end of time. Either way, it's reaped. We say that God... God forgives sin. But God can't forgive sin without punishing it. God has to punish sin. He can't forgive it without punishing it. Churchianity wants to act like you can just say sorry to God and He just forgives it. There's never any punishment. No. Sin is punished. It was either punished or reaped on the shoulders of Christ and that, sin, and that reaping covers you or it's going to be reaped on your own shoulders. That's your choice. Either way, your sin's got to be punished. You can allow it to be punished in Christ and receive that or you can attempt to pay for it on your own. And you're going to reap what you sow. And when the earth is reaped, my friends, it's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's He that sits on a cloud with a sharp sickle. He reaps the vine of this earth. The blood is going to flow even to the horse's bridles. Just like when... In the vineyard when they stomp the grapes and the juice comes out of the grapes. That's the imagery used for the judgment that's coming to this world. So reaping, reaping, reaping. I want to talk about it. We've got two reapings. It can be one of two things. Praise God when the harvest is reaped, there's wheat that's gathered into the barn. There's tares that are cast into the oven. 
But either way, we're looking for a reaping in our lives. We're looking for that Son of Man to call us home. The great harvest of the saints, that rapture. It's coming. But I want to get into that. It's a difficult passage. I don't claim to know or understand everything here. I'm not going to. If you can show me where any of these things that I've preached are wrong with Scripture, I'll listen to you. I'm not going to be dogmatic about some of this stuff, but neither should we be afraid to talk about it or exegete it. Hope this was a blessing to you today. Hell is eternal. It's real. Let's don't be afraid to talk about it. But let's also be those that rest. Regardless of how terrible things seem today, let's rest knowing that even if we were to die tomorrow, when we die in the Lord, it's rest from our labors. It's peace. Even as it will be for those at the height of this time of Jacob's trouble. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time and Your Word. May it be seen that daily grabs our attention, the horrifying reality of hell. May it motivate us not to go out and be jerks and yell and scream and act as if we enjoy the fact that people are going to die without Christ, but may we be those that aren't ashamed to warn. Just as someone would warn little children playing in the highway about the dangers of approaching traffic. May we be those, Lord. May we not make excuses for our loved ones, Lord, that are headed for hell. Pray, God, you would have mercy upon them. May we not be those that have the regrets of the rich man in hell who begged for an opportunity to go back and warn his dad and his brothers. May we be not that, but those that are willing to do it, to call sin what it is, to call false teaching what it is, to call a state of spiritual lostness exactly what it is. May we be those who don't make excuses, but in not making excuses, we're driven by zeal and love. And that we pray for those, Lord, who persecute us. We pray for those, Lord, who are lost, that you would save them. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What we've written, we read about this morning, Father, is the terror of the Lord. And at the end of days, it's cause of rejoicing for the righteous. But may it be what motivates us as it did Paul to persuade men about the truth. Bless our food and our fellowship. Thank you for all these believers, Lord. May we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as we see these days approaching. Lord, if there be any conflict, may we resolve it. It's our only option. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.